Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Derek Van Riper here with Matt Medica. It is Monday, March 23rd. On this episode, we're going to talk about a few auctions that Matt had over the weekend from more of a broad strategic standpoint. We'll talk about pocket aces. We'll talk about paying up for top-end catchers, whether or not Matt ever does that, if he tends to punt the position all the time, talk about different ways to handle that. Uh, we're also going to take a look at some prices and the overall draft market as drafts have continued to trickle in as March has gone on. We'll talk about some players who are going for increased prices and try to decide if that's a good thing in terms of actually still having room for profit or if those players have become too expensive. Uh, we also received a lot of great mailbag questions uh, of a whole variety of different topics that we'll cover in those. Matt, how's it going for you on this Monday? Oh, it's going best as can be. I'm just happy to be talking uh, some fantasy baseball. So hopefully people will enjoy it. Yeah, same boat here. I mean, given the circumstances, things are are going pretty well and happy to have this uh, this break for the next hour or so. Uh, let's start with the pocket aces. I was looking at one of the boards you sent me from your auctions, and you put together a team where you paid 36 for Bueller, 32 for Flaherty, uh, 24 for you Darvish. And pocket aces, I think, is a strategy that has become kind of a, a trademark of bat flip crazy uh, on Twitter. Toby is his real name. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that a preferred strategy for you to be aggressive with multiple aces, at least? I mean, pocket aces, I think, kind of implies two, of course, like poker. But in this case, I think you arguably had three because Darvish has a path to be that kind of pitcher this year. Or is that more of a format and room-dependent sort of approach that you kind of lean into when a situation calls for it? Uh, In in the auction format, uh, I am a believer in usually getting two uh, stud pitchers or two pitchers I deem to be studs. The Darvish price was just so low compared to the other auctions that I did, and for $24, I was like, you know what, I'll buy him and figure that out later. Uh, I've always, you know, like having a strong pitching foundation ever since I've gotten into the NFBC and pitching something I focus on a little more. And uh, uh, Sean Childs, NFBC Hall of Famer, I think he's the one uh, back in the day that kind of termed it, I might be wrong here, but termed it like dueling aces, having those two. And, you know, he was maybe at the forefront of that way back when. And I think it's a strategy... That I know we talked last week or four about is Julio Urias closer to Garrett Cole, and I don't know if that's true. Just because you're the every pitcher is going to need that first month to kind of ramp up, but I think those following couple of months could be those huge separators, and that final month, a guy like a Cole, Degrom, uh, a Scherzer can really separate you from the pack because the correction time isn't there to fix those ratios. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting, you know, whenever this season does begin to see how some things change with young pitchers. I mean, guys like Urias and Jesus Lazardo, I think are pretty firmly in the plans of their respective teams. But, you know, we'll talk about some of the later young pitchers going in drafts and auctions. I think we're going to see teams get a little more aggressive because of the the timelines and, uh, you know, shortened season increases variance. But kind of drilling into the ace topic a bit further i think it's become pretty tough because the number of aces is dwindling Uh, we've had injuries this spring luis severino chris sale both undergoing tommy john surgery so there's two guys who i think clearly had paths to be top 10 pitchers this year 
who are no longer a part of the equation. You know, we've seen Justin Verlander have surgery on his groin. He's got the the lat injury as well. Scherzer's been banged up. Uh, so I think it, it's becoming a bit more of a, a scarce commodity to have multiple aces, especially. I think what it comes down to is, you know, where do you find that second option? If you can't get two out of the top eight, two out of the top 10, where I think most people would agree those guys are all legitimate SP1s in terms of workload expectations and skills, can you find the the next one? Like you, Darvish isn't in my current top 10. He was ranked 20th among pitchers the last time I put rankings out. I think you can make a pretty strong case for him to be in that group. I think if you wanted to say, Darvish is more valuable than Snell in 2020. I don't think I'm I'm going to fight back a ton on that, even though I do have Snell ranked higher. So how much of the multiple aces approach is kind of selectively finding the second one from that sort of 10 to 25 cluster of starting pitchers? Yeah, I mean, I think in an auction, it's easier. For, I mean, certain things, it's kind of weird. Like, it's easier for me, or I want that, you know, Two pitcher that two stud approach, and the other night, like for instance, Friday night, I said I'm not going to buy Walker Bueller. I bought him a couple times already, and I went 39. And because to me, he's the SP three. Uh, I think the team is fantastic. The venue he pitches at is fantastic, and in a short season, I, I really want to uh, be have a heightened focus on that. So if if I don't get those guys. It's basically what the auction is going to tell me if, if, if I only have, say, maybe, maybe that one stud. And sometimes that guy will fall to 24. Like, Darvish has been a guy consistently going in the high 20s, early 30s. And Friday night, he went for 24, like I said. And I was not letting him get by for that. Uh, Jack Flaherty is a guy that I don't really draft often. But for 30 to $32... I'll take him on in, in an auction. Uh, I think he's proven over you know his first year and a half or more that he will get you the strikeouts. Uh, we loved him coming in. And he had that struggle. Is that behind him? I think for the most part. So, and then otherwise you, you're going to see because because the, these young kids are rising up, and there is some values to be had. Yeah, Flaherty is the high-end pitcher who I think relative to other people I'm a little bit lower on than most not so low that I couldn't end up with them on a team it's much more likely to happen for me in an auction than in a snake draft format there's just some players like that it's kind of strange because the way auctions work just the simple dynamics of going dollar for dollar for players you can end up with someone that you wouldn't choose when you have a, a bigger list but only you know one pick to make in that particular spot it's the exact same thing that explains how I ended up with Fernando Tatis Jr. in NL Labor. Like that, that was an auction thing. That wasn't a. I, I, I'm, I'm changing my mind on the player. It was just sort of I'm comfortable at this price when this price is thirty auction dollars. I am not comfortable at this price when that is pick sixteen in a snake draft. And I think that exact same mindset applies to Jack Flaherty. Uh, but yeah, the list of aces definitely shortening up because of injuries. Uh, I think people would make arguments for Luis Castillo to possibly be in there. You know, I'm higher on Brandon Woodruff than most people. I think it's just a I'll matter of innings. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like if in a scenario where I didn't have two true aces, I would feel okay about you know Woodruff and maybe Jose Barrios as my first two pitchers in some order. I think if if I built a foundation that was 
really strong across the five hitting categories, had to wait a little bit for pitching or if it was an auction and I was just getting pushed out on some of those higher end guys, I would feel just fine with that Woodruff-Barrios combination instead. Well, yeah, but Woodruff, it's like interesting, as we're saying, between an auction and a draft. I end up with Woodruff in a lot of drafts and rarely in the auction format. So it's just, and it's like how I could create a team. Uh, guys I'm sure we'll touch on later, like a Fran Mill Reyes. I don't get him in the auction because he just goes for too much. And at that point in the draft, I don't have that money to allocate to him. But I can set my board up after those first five rounds, knowing I can get, say, if I wanted, you know, to go all power, like a Sano, Fran Mill, Schwaber type, I can do that a lot more easier in a draft as opposed to an auction. At least that's the way it works for me. I think the thing that happens in auctions, and you mentioned the high price on, on Fran Mill Reyes, we'll talk about him as a helium player in a few minutes, is it's part of what we described in our previous auction episodes where when a resource is becoming scarce, you know, the last 40 home run potential outfielder, and there's a team that has some money left or a couple of teams that have money left and they realize, well, this is it. It's now or never. I'm going to have money left on the table I'm still going to have the hammer even if I do spend money on Fran Mill Reyes. That's where we see prices kind of jump up four, five, six, seven dollars higher than they probably should be on second tier players. But that's what brings me back to kind of just a core mixed auction mindset that I've had for a long time is that if there's going to be some inflation, if everyone in the room is going to be aggressive and there are going to be players going for five plus dollars above their projected value. I would rather overpay for stars than overpay for mid-tier guys. And that's a huge part of why I tend to be so aggressive at the beginning of auctions. And I think it could backfire if an entire room played really conservative and kept things close to the values. Maybe I end up overpaying and I get beat throughout the second and third tier players because I can't compete with what the rest of the room has money-wise. But I think so many owners in mixed leagues especially are pushing aggressively at the top that you can continue to get away with that strategy and you just want to avoid overpaying in the middle. That becomes the thing that you really just don't want to do. Yeah, I'm, uh, I co-sign on that. I give you, a, I give you an amen because I'm pretty much you know, the same animal when it, when it comes to that. And then when you have whatever money you have left when you get in that middle, I'll identify certain players that can help the core that I built that I deem necessary, that I really want to try and get, you know. So if I can get a couple of those guys, then it's it's usually a successful endeavor. Got another broad strategy question. This just kind of popped into my head while looking at the auction results that you sent me. Uh, I think you spent like a combined $5 on four catchers in two <laughs> auctions over the weekend. Do you ever not punt catchers or is there a scenario when you do actually pay up even like Wilson Contreras in one of those drafts went for 14 bucks, which didn't seem that bad to me. Like I, I find myself being a, a little bit more selective in terms of when I actually do uh, invest in a catcher. Maybe it's a situation where. Uh, I, I got pushed out on a few players up top, so I've got a little extra money left. Like That seems to be kind of like a fallback option, but not something I necessarily want to do as my first choice. Generally, I will not. Uh, I Maybe it's just pure luck dating back to uh, like an Evan Gaddis or uh, what is his name? Wilson, 
Who is the guy in the Rockies? Not Wilson. We almost said Wilson Contreras. Oh, Will and Rosario, yeah. Will and Rosario, thank uh, Guys like that, even last year, uh, I'm more willing to play the catcher game. I'll try and maybe throw somebody out I like for $3. Like Sean Murphy was a guy, but he keeps getting bid up. I throw him out for 3 He usually goes for at least 5 to you know $6 in some cases. Uh, I'll try and maybe do a $2 bid on somebody I like, but... I'd rather have the money for the other positions or even that extra dollar or two later on to get that corner guy I need or that outfielder I think can really uh, help my team. I mean, look, I don't think it's a bad strategy. I understand why people pay up for certain catchers and do that. It's just something I don't do. And like everything I'm saying is coming from what has worked from for me and how I'm comfortable and that's what you have to develop. Whatever your strategy is that works, continue it, you know, you know, and be evolving and be able to call audibles and stuff. But I'm going to, I'm going to continue doing what has worked until that, that needs to change. It's a cross sport analogy, but I think it holds up. Like if anyone listening, watched the NFC championship game, the way San Francisco ran the ball in that game, like Kyle Shanahan's play calling and, designs and scheme were pretty much flawless and it looked as though the Packers weren't making adjustments but what it was I think was that San Francisco was making an adjustment before the Packers could counter adjust so when the Packers counter adjusted the Niners had also pivoted to something completely different and like it was almost like Kyle Shanahan was two steps ahead of Matt LaFleur in that game and Mike Pettin And I think that sort of concept where you've got every trick in the bag ready and you keep tweaking as you need to, that's how a great auction player would handle an auction. Here's here's a point I want to point out. If you believe somebody was worth $27 and he could be a core player for your team, why wouldn't you pay $29 and then tweak it down on another position, subtract the $2 somewhere else? It can work. You can make it work. So if there's somebody I want to build my core, I'll usually have a few guys, and I try and change it up each auction, but a few guys I I want as my core player. So if a guy was at 27, and I know, okay, I'll go as high as 29. I'm not going to bid 28. I'm I'm just going to go 29, and if you want to pay 30, maybe you could have him there. Those are some certain things. Like I'm not a person that's going to be rigid to a certain price. Right. I I think... That sort of discipline can work for some people. Um, it's something that Larry Schechter, I mean, he wrote a whole book mm-hmm. about it. And Larry's had a ton of success in industry leagues and NFBC leagues in bigger challenges. Player. He's, an, he's an outstanding player. He's one, of, he's one of the best players around. Like there's, You could put his track record up against just about anybody and mm-hmm. it holds up. Um, his system, I think, is, I think it's too rigid for some people. And I think what I mean by that is not that it can't work, but it's that if you pick up Larry's system and you don't know when to kind of say, okay, I have to round up, I have to stray away, then you're going to end up coming up light on talent. So uh, I've seen this happen in auctions before where an owner gets just too stuck to his values. It wasn't Larry. It was a different player, different league. But he ended up spending, I want to say, like 40 or $50 on his last buy just to put all the money on one player because there was fab redemption in the league. And what I think was happening was this owner was waiting for value, kept saying, okay, everyone's overspending. There's going to be value eventually. Mm -hmm. 
and it didn't happen on the players that he wanted it to happen on. Like everybody that he kept thinking he'd get for a value kept going for more than they should. And there just wasn't anything to spend the money on eventually. So I I think it it can just backfire if you don't know when to go ahead and kind of intervene and, and kind of push back. So I think those tenets, like the things that Larry wrote about, are very helpful foundations for any player. But you can be you can be definitely putting yourself in a position to miss out on talent if you're too rigid to your auction values. Yeah, and look, and it works for Larry. And if you could incorporate strategy and make it work for you, then that's fine. But I mean, not to call him out or anything. What was it, the, the fantasy Sherpa or something that year? Yeah, yeah, yeah it, was, it was it was Scott Swainey that year. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that'll that'll always be remembered, and and that's a learning uh, aspect of it. And one thing I can guarantee you is I will never end up with extra money in an auction. Yeah, it'll never happen on my team. <laughs> Swainey is a really good player, by the way. I think yeah. he finished top uh, yeah. five in the league that year. Oh, that's impressive. Which is which is incredible, like with well. the amount of money that was left on the table. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 people have to find a system that mm-hmm. that works for them, or at least adapt existing systems to make things work. And I think the absolute best players are the ones who can kind of pivot on the fly. Okay, values are twelve dollars and fifteen dollars above what I expected. I mean, if you get in some crazy room and you don't fall into that trap you're going to have to have a plan to build out of the middle correctly. You have to know which players in the middle are going to work. You're going to have to know uh, maybe to spend up at other spots just to kind of counteract what everybody else is doing. I think that's the the broader point that I was hoping to make. I don't know if I actually made it, but I tried nonetheless. Just to piggyback off that point is how important the in-season management is. And there are ways, even if you made a mistake here or there, that you can improve your team and being extremely diligent in that aspect of FAB can really can really do wonders. Yeah, and I would say that Scott Swainade obviously did it that year in Tout Wars to, to not have one of the worst teams in the league. Uh, says a lot about his in-season management and some of the players that he was buying in that auction. Uh, let's talk about some some helium players as uh, March has rolled along. Kind of mentioned him in passing a little earlier. Franmil Reyes getting boosted up a little bit. I wonder if I mentioned the possibility that the the twenty dollar number in particular was probably the result of some auction dynamics. Like I think there's helium plus that in this case where Franmil Reyes was crushing the ball before spring training stopped. There's no worry about playing time. He's in the American League, so the fact that he's a bad defender is less problematic now that he's in Cleveland. 37 homers a year ago. Hit 249 while doing that. 310 on base. He's kind of uh, like a Crush Davis type, really. Like, not a good defender. Undeniable power. Probably a low batting average more often than not. Do you see a, a peak of Crush Davis where there's a day where Franmil Reyes is actually like a consideration as a top 60 overall player or do you think last year 2019 was really as good as it gets with that skill set well i think before the trade the average was much higher and it it kind of went south when he went to cleveland if i remember correctly and as you stated it was a perfect storm with he was crushing it in uh spring training most people have him as like their guy to say win the home run total and stuff like that and the important thing here, too, and I, I look, I like him, too. I think he could be Crush Davis, but, 
you know, a 265 batting average, which really changes everything there. But where he, when he gets called out in an auction is extremely important. And it's usually in that middling section where, or middle, middling towards the later end of it, where he's that last guy that, you know, one of those last guys that can really, you know, put you over the top or be that power source that can really do it for you. And that's why the guys that have the hammer are going to make sure they get him. And maybe he was going for $12, $13, maybe a higher 15 and now he's going high teens to 20 That's the thing. Where he gets called out is extremely important as well. If you wanted Fran Mil Reyes, like if you saw him as a target, if you did believe he was going to be maybe a top 60, top 75 player in 2020, thinking about how he's been treated with that push in the second tier, would you nominate him earlier in your auction? Because at the very beginning or early on in the auction, everybody can sort of dream on the potential of all the other players they want, right? Like if you want to get Fran Mil Reyes at 15 instead of 20, my thinking would be that you'd want to nominate him somewhat early, kind of when people are, are throwing 30-plus dollar guys, throw a Fran Mil Reyes curveball in there. The room knows you want him, so maybe you pay a couple extra bucks, but I feel like you have a better chance of keeping him closer to his actual value than if you wait it out and he's one of the last power sources on the board. Uh, I think that is something that if you if you want to own him, I think that's the best case to save a few dollars, uh, especially the way it's been going. And I did two auctions this weekend. And I'll give you, for instance, a guy that in the past has maybe gone for like a dollar or two early on in the auctions, Randall Grychek. He's a target of mine always later on. But And I try and call him out, and I'll put $2 to start, or even if I throw $4 out, he's going for 6 or $7. Because in that last run, he's a guy that's getting at bats every day, has the 30 home run power, possibly maybe with, you know, with all those plate appearances, could one day hit 40. So, you know, if you want him, maybe he's another guy you got to throw out earlier too. Because people are going to say, you know what? I don't want to fill up my outfield right now. I don't want to pay a guy that you know was worth a dollar or two. I don't want to pay four dollars for. Him. Yeah, Grichik's a, a tricky player. I mean, I do like him where he goes when he's cheap because I think the playing time is really stable. I don't think there's another level there though. I mean, we've got a, a pretty clean four-year run where he's hit between two thirty and two forty-five, and the OBP has been no higher than three hundred one, but it's been in the two eighties in three of those four seasons. You're drafting him for cheap power. He's a, a sort of like roster correction sort of player where maybe you went speed and average heavy early and you just need that threat for 30 home runs with good run production. The lineup around him keeps getting better. Uh, I think five, six, you know, that that's okay in a mixed league auction. I think you can, you can be fine with that price. But if he were to get much more expensive than that, I'd probably be out in that case. He'd, be, he'd go back to being one of those guys that in snake drafts, I'm going to end up with him. In auctions, I'm probably going to go somewhere else. Yeah, no, I mean, I haven't gotten him the last couple of drafts because he just—I was priced out at that point. I, I couldn't afford, you know, the five six dollars. So it's you know just to point out, he's another guy that goes late for for the most part, and at that point, the person that has the money and needs to fill that outfield or needs that extra power bat is going to pay that extra dollar or two. Let's talk about Jesus Lizardo. Uh, he looked excellent this spring as well. Uh, just, I mean, he had an eight strikeout performance in three and a third innings against the Mariners in early March. That was getting people hyped up. 
he has all the tools you're looking for in a frontline starter at this point. I think it's going to come down to innings in the long run and whether or not physically he holds up. Uh, but as far as the skills, as far as the talent, there's just nothing to doubt here. And I think Lizardo and Urias and the pitchers in that cluster, the future aces whose workloads we've been worried about, that's the group that a lot of people are concentrating on as players who become more valuable in a scenario in which the top-end pitchers can't throw significantly more innings than them. There's still some skills downside that Lizardo and Urias possess in the short term. I mean, if you think about guys going through the, the, the whole season, regardless of how long that is, as starters, really for the first time at the big league level, that presents unique challenges. So while Luzardo and Urias could both be top 10, top 15 pitchers this time next year, I don't think there's any like pushback on that. They're, I almost wonder if we're overcorrecting for how likely they are to hit their best projection. Like Even though they're exciting guys and you want to have them on your teams, do you feel like the prices are creeping up to the point where you're no longer comfortable paying up for them? Yeah, no, it's getting there, and it got there yesterday, uh, I think maybe Friday night or the previous auction I did. I think I did go as high as 17 on Lazardo. Yesterday, he went for 20, and even Urias, who maybe a week ago I paid as high as 14, and he went for maybe 17 yesterday, and it is getting to that point. What if, uh, look, uh, I have eyes. I think Lozano's fantastic. But what if he basically pitches four innings in like every start? They're like, this kid's too valuable for us. You know, let him go through the lineup one time or, you know, a little over that like we're seeing right now. And then they go they go to the bullpen. Because, you know, they have to be careful with this arm. We know how Oakland operates as far as cost and money and stuff like that. So this kid's like the franchise that I'm – very exciting player. Uh, I would like to have him on my teams, but you're going to right now be asking yourself, are you willing to pay about $20 for him? And I think if you if you take the approach that we're likely to lose about a third of the big league season, like that's, that's just where things stand right now and things change every day. That means the ceiling for any pitcher is probably about 22 starts. And maybe some veterans get pushed more because of the way off days work, but there might not be as many off days to get the things in the way they need to get in. If Luzardo is more of a five-and-fly guy and he makes 22 starts, it's 110 innings right there. I think his cap is probably in the 130 to 140 range, so there's there's room for him to maybe go six if he's pitching well consistently. He could be a, a regular six-inning sort of guy. I don't know how often they would let him go seven plus even when he's pitching well that that's where I think this there's still going to be a little bit of a separation between the young future aces and the current ones that people might have a hard time rectifying where that third time through the order or the fourth time through the order teams are going to want to be very careful to protect those young starters also because they're going to want to have them available for the postseason too exactly you can manage these innings in a way where you still get to use the guy on regular rest you still get to use them a lot and you don't expose them that extra time through the order, which in the long run, Lizardo, Urias, those guys can handle it. In the short term, they don't have to, and you have the possibility of having them pitch into the postseason. Yeah, for me, I think that you know the condensed season obviously benefits them. But say we go back on your initial 110 innings, you know, 22 starts, five innings. 
They want those 30 possible innings or you know, 20 or so in the playoffs. And a team like Oakland, I think, has a good enough team to at least make a wild card. So do you want to push it where you're going to, you know, you're going to have, I mean, every team pretty much going to go for it out the gate. It's just, if it's too short of a season, everybody has a chance. So, you know, are you going to burn those innings in season, especially if they're pretty much securing a spot, however it may be, or do you want to have that ability in in the postseason? Yeah, I think that's the, the question that teams are going to be wrestling with internally when they have similar situations to the one that the A's have with Lizardo. Uh, there's one player I saw on, on your boards who I'm surprised hasn't been costing more lately. It's Miguel Andujar. Uh, I think he was on both of your teams for a buck or two bucks, which is wild. Like I, I just can't believe he's not catching some helium at this point. And I talked about him a lot with Eno on one of the episodes of Rates and Barrels. We broke down the UT pool. And I think our, our consensus was just that other than Jordan Alvarez, all of the UT-only players we care about are underpriced. And I think the only way that's really going to change is if there's some kind of push to change default league formats from two catchers to two utilities, right? If we switched from two catchers to one and added a second utility spot, I think that would solve the problem. Like, if we did that, would UT-only players get priced correctly for their talent? I think absolutely. I mean, if you take that, if you added that extra UT, uh, you're going to need that offense. And the guys that provide it, whether they play a position or not, would definitely uh, feel that effect. And, like, the UT players I'm looking at are, say, Davis. You know, he's usually going undervalued. But I may not have the money later on for him. Or like a Nick Solak. I mean, originally if the season would have started, he had an everyday role pretty much with the Willie Calhoun injury. Now Calhoun is somebody that may be underpriced. He's going to have that time to heal. But I think they want Nick Solak involved on that team in some way, shape, or form. And with Andujar, maybe right now what's keeping him down is... The fact that Stanton has the time to recoup. Judge now has the time to recoup. And I got Judge on an auto pick. I fell asleep in, the, in, a, in a one-hour DC. And I was pretty pissed because I don't have any Judge. And I really didn't want him on this team. <laughs> but they said it looked he looked a little better, whatever the last x-ray was the other day. But it, I don't think it's still 100%. And it hasn't been since, you know, last fall. So... In the next month or two, he's going to be 100%. I mean, I don't know about it. I know a guy like uh, Aaron Hicks could be back middle of the season, would have normally been middle of the season. So maybe his bridge is less of a weight than we would have normally have expected. But I think if Andrew Hart can hit, Andrew Hart will play. And I thought he showed us that, you know, before the injury last season in, in 2018, like Miguel Andujar is a 23 year old, hit 27 homers, hit 297. Had a 328 OBP, 527 slug, plenty of RBIs, plenty of runs scored. I mean, if nothing else, that's what he that's what he can do. Like we don't know where he can fit defensively. He's got a big arm, so that's where I think the the outfield experiment makes some sense. I think it comes down to Andujar versus say Talkman or even Brett Gardner in terms of offensive contributions. If everybody is healthy, if Stanton and Judge are actually good to go, you know they're obviously going to play. But that still leaves Andahar a couple paths, and Talkman and Gardner are the two guys who I would look at as most susceptible to losing some playing time, and they can shuffle pieces around a little bit 
in order to make it happen. Uh, so I think he's going to play. And I, if he's not like a 6 or $7 player in auctions, it, by the time we flip the calendar to April, I, I think people are still just getting it wrong as far as what he brings to the table. Well, I mean, the, this is the important thing, especially if you want to implement a strategy that you and I like to do, is having these end guy games that you think are going to – players that are going to substantially out-earn, you know – a couple of dollars here. Like one guy I have on every team is John D. Diaz. I think, you know, he has the, the possibility. I know it's Tampa and, you know, all the games they play with their lineups. But is he not a guy that has a possibility to be like a Josh Bell type kind of player? I'm not saying he's going to be this year's Josh Bell. But in one of the outcomes, you look at that guy. <laughs> the dude is jacked. Just that little, you know, swing correction, swing path could do a hell of a lot good for him. And, you know, he has dual corner eligibility and only goes for 2 or $3. Look where he hit in the lineup last year. He never hit lower than sixth. Usually he was in the top four against righties and lefties. I think third base is one of those spots where the Rays will probably platoon and mix and match a little bit less than we think as long as Diaz is healthy. I think what he was showing them last year uh, is that growth that many of us thought maybe he could deliver upon because, as you said, he is jacked. He's one of those guys, when you look at him, I remember seeing this on like Instagram or something a couple of years ago because <laughs> it was floating around baseball Twitter. It was like a picture of Yandy Diaz doing bicep curls or something. And you just looked and you're like, those are not the arms of a baseball player. Those are the arms of a bodybuilder. Like that is... Mm-hmm. That is abnormal. And you look at the stats and you're like, what low single-digit home run totals? Like, what, <laughs> What's going on with this guy? Always had good plate skills, uh, good hit tool, and a good eye. So I, he's shown that in the big leagues as well. Uh, it's rare to find a player who has that lineup position, has those skills, and has shown that extra punch in limited opportunities. So I think you're right to have uh, a lot of Diaz on your rosters at this point. Uh, a couple of other pitchers who have been creeping up. Pretty much all the Dodgers pitchers. Kershaw, yes. David Price, Julio Urias. I mean, Urias for all the reasons we talked about with Lazardo. With Kershaw and Price, I think with Kershaw, maybe that's the result of a few other aces going down with those injuries like we talked about at the top. And with David Price, I think it's just the realization that he is one of the offseason biggest winners in terms of his situation just getting so much better. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I did a team, uh, I think it was last Sunday, where I got Walker Bueller as my ace. I got David Price, Urias, and I might have even got Alex Wood for like a buck or two late. Uh, you know, dodging Dodgers pitchers is something I will always target. And I think in a condensed season, it elevates Kershaw even more because you don't have the worry of him making it through the six months. And pretty much the same with Price. He's obviously getting the bounce from the trade out of Fenway to Chavez Ravine and not being in the American League East or facing the Yankees in particular. So, and, you know, these guys to me are valuable and now you're starting to see it. Uh, their prices are all going up. I mean, even Alex Wood, I think Friday night went for like $4 or something. Wow. Yeah, he was a reserve pick just a few weeks ago. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm on that. I, I think if if the if the Dodgers aren't the best organization in the big leagues at managing pitching, they're not far off that. So uh, if they go back to the well with someone like Alex Wood, 
we should pay attention. Like if they think they're going to get a hundred or 120 innings from him, that matters, right? Like that's, that's a sign of, of potential value because uh, someone like that can step up at almost no cost and actually be a pretty big difference maker. Someone you can use for the bulk of their starts, all the home starts, especially I can't imagine many scenarios in which I would, you know, bench Alex Wood at Chavez ravine because I trust the Dodgers to manage him as well as anybody. Uh, there's one other pitcher that I think you said is starting to creep up a little bit, but you're expecting more, and that's Rich Hill, former Dodger, now a Minnesota Twin. You know the delayed start to this season affords him time to get healthy, and we know when Rich Hill is healthy in recent years, like you're going to get elite ratios. That's been the case since he kind of came back into the league uh, way back in 2015. Now with Boston, I mean the worst ERA we've seen from him since 2015 was 366 in 2018. That came with a 112 whip. And we've seen numbers in the mid to low twos over seasons as well. So this is another organization, Minnesota making the big changes. Wes Johnson, their pitching coach, the organization has just changed a lot about its philosophy. I trust them. I trust their judgment, and I trust Rich Hill anyway. And a healthy Rich Hill is absolutely an interesting player, despite the fact that he's now 40 years old. Yeah, I mean, I've been moving him up in drafts where, say, he might have been a 24th rounder, uh, early 20s for me. If, like I said, we ain't starting until June, July, it's pretty much on the path where he should be ready to go. Uh, I think he could be an extreme asset. You pointed out all the reasons why. But on the Twins, in the AL Central, I mean, the only offensive team to worry about is the White Sox there. He's pitched in the American League uh, prior with uh, Oakland and uh, Boston. So I I think there's a lot to like with him. And I pretty much got him for $2 uh, in in my auctions yesterday. I really wanted him for this team, I was for this rotation I was building. And I figured I'd go $3 and that would secure him. Somebody said four at the last second and kind of pissed me off, so I so I did go five. I don't know if I go five in the future, but I, I just think the upside for the, the the possibility for him to out earn three to five dollars is enormous if he's healthy. That's a risk. The blister alone could shut him down, but you got to take some chances at certain spots. Yeah, the the tilted five on on Rich Hill though. I mean that happens sometimes. You get a little feisty in the end game and <laughs> push the, push the plus one or call out the extra dollar, uh, and, and you realize after the fact you're like, yeah, maybe I should have backed away there. Yeah. But uh, a five on Rich Hill probably probably won't break you. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of great mailbag questions came in overnight. Thanks for sending those our way. Uh, let's take a few of those. The first one comes from Taylor. Taylor writes, are you doing extra prep for 2020 or taking a step back from baseball for a bit? If you're doing more prep, how are you staying motivated with things looking so grim? So I'll put that question to you first, Matt. Are you digging into players more? Like what's the what's the current approach for you in this extra time? Well, basically by 9.30 a.m. I'm bored out of my mind. And I try and get open the computer and do things. I think the one thing I am doing is trying to see maybe the best way to optimize a half a season. I don't know if I figured that out correctly. I see everybody's going with what the hitters are much more valuable now. And I'm maybe going the opposite way where I, I, but I agree. Look, 
pitching is always more volatile, whether it's over six months or three months. But I do think you're going to need it. So I'm trying to figure out what pitchers I can get, what pitchers I want more with the core of players that, I, look, I'm hoping you really need your hitters as well to get off to that start. Like Jose Ramirez was fantastic in the second half, but he can't. you can't afford a first half or the second half he had of 2018. You can't afford that with any of your elite hitters because that time to recoup is not going to be there. So those are the adjustments I'm making. I'm trying to figure out the best way to attack an 80 to 100 game season, which I think it will be. Yeah, I'm doing something similar. I mean, I think that's that's part of like the core adjustment everyone has to make. Uh, but you're right, like optimizing for that's going to be a key. I think for me, I'm also going to turn over every single stone. I thought I turned them all over already, <laughs> but the truth is, like, it's a huge player pool. Things change, so I'm going to go back and kind of make sure there wasn't anything I was missing. Uh, look back at my notes and my rankings, compare those to what the leagues were doing over the course of the last few months, and just kind of like double check myself and just make sure that nothing at all slipped through the cracks, which, you know, is just something you can do when you get extra time. So, um, you know, staying motivated with things looking so grim, I think it's it's escapism, like we've talked about mm-hmm. on our pods of the last few weeks. Like, we, we keep talking, we keep thinking, we keep writing, we keep drafting, we keep building teams because it's a distraction from things around us. It's not that we're not coping with the reality. It's just we need a break from it. Uh, I think it's it's a healthy way to get a break from it, to not fixate on the the broader problem that we're all dealing with right now. Thanks a lot for the question, Taylor. Uh, Next question comes from Nick. He writes, I've started to look toward 2021. If you had a long-term league, Keeper, Dynasty, Autonew, planning for a lost season, what strategies would you employ? I I thought that was kind of an interesting question because um, I was thinking about RDI, the Rotowire Dynasty Invitational. Mm -hmm. It's the biggest dynasty league I play in. And in leagues like that, aging players decline in value so rapidly you know if you're still allowed to make trades if you're still allowed to make moves would you start moving your veteran players now as opposed to waiting until the future because i mean look it's gonna be hard to make trades in some of those leagues because everyone's kind of just looking at the season and going i don't know i don't know when we're gonna have it but is it viable to consider getting away from some of your older players as soon as you can, knowing that when they're all a year older, a year from now, they're almost certainly going to be less valuable than they are right now. Uh, look, the RGR is fantastic. I was in it the first couple of years. I'm just not a dynasty guy. I've done very well with with the rookies. I usually just, you know, the guys that are coming up now that I can target, that I believe will get that playing time in the first month. So that's what I'm good at, and that's why you know I'm not in the RDR anymore. I figured there's somebody that can do that better, put more time to it. I'm more of a redraft kind of guy. But as you made the point about say the aging players, if you're not going to get anything near the return they deserve, if there's no season, that means they've had a year where they weren't taxed, and you know maybe that's a, a reprieve on their body where they can bounce back, come back more fresh and have that maybe that one more or two more good seasons, you know, due to that time off. I'm just looking at it on a contrarian look uh, view. No, I mean, it's, it's entirely possible that rest actually helps some players in that regard. Again, and this is not to 
indicate that what's happening in the world is in any way good. This is just looking at it through the lens yes, of exactly. what is, how does this apply to a 33-year-old baseball player who's been playing 150 games every year for the last 15 years of his life? Like, How does it apply that way? Um, so I think you could look at different things like that. I mean, where you are in your in your competitive cycle as a long-term league team owner is also kind of a big deal too. Like if you were closing in on making a push, just make sure that the core you have intact is still going to be a core that you feel really good about going into next year. I don't think one year would totally change that, but obviously it can change things just a little bit. Let's uh, check out the next question. This one comes from Kev. He writes, if we assume an 80 to 100 game schedule at this point, are there any rookies you would still target? Uh, I think rookies in general become a lot more appealing. And Matt, I think teams are going to be more willing to go ahead and push players up because even if you're a team kind of in the middle, and I think that would describe, say, the Toronto Blue Jays really well, like a young team on the rise, a shorter season increases variance. And if there's more variance, it means you can close the gap on the contending teams more quickly. So Nate Pearson probably is a bigger part of the Blue Jays' plans in a shortened season than he was in a long season. And that's a guy who was probably going to come up pretty early in the year anyway. So I'm looking at guys like Nate Pearson. I'm looking at guys like Spencer Howard in Philadelphia. Um, Dylan Carlson's a guy that I've liked from the jump this draft season. I think teams are going to be more aggressive with promotions whenever the season begins. Are you looking at the pool the same way? Yeah, no, I, I think absolutely. I think the Blue Jays, you hit the nail on the head there. I've been trying to load up on uh, Pearson of late. Uh, in the past, in the draft champions I did, I would get like him and a Matt Shoemaker because I figured at some point Pearson was coming up and I'd have Shoe in that rotation. But now, like a Mackenzie Gore, if you know, the Padres need to win, AJ Preller needs to deliver uh, for his owner. It's getting to that point, and maybe Mackenzie Gore is now has the opportunity that wasn't afforded to him previously because it's all hands on deck. Uh, as you mentioned, you know uh, Carlson. I think you know everybody who's on him now, and he's a guy that you're not getting for a dollar in, in, in a mixed auction. You probably won't even get him for two dollars anymore. You're probably going to need that three dollar price tag to get a to get a Dil, uh, Dylan Carson. So I mean, look at teams and where guys have the avenue to really uh, be a factor because because there are players here and. I don't know what he's considered. Uh, Sam Hilliard, is he considered a rookie? I know he played some games last year. He looked a little impressive uh, in September. But if he got an everyday role in, in that outfield, like I said, I'm kind of short in Garrett Hampson. I'm more of the McMahon guy. And McMahon's another guy who's getting more and more expensive every auction I do. So, I mean, players like this that you know have a little pop, a little speed. Uh, there's Joe Adele. Shows some maturity, and in, in a month, he's up. The Angels got off to a good start. He's that fire plug they need to put him over the top. Just, you know, throwing that out there. Yeah, I think Joe Adele, it was just odd because of the Jock Peterson failed trade that it was agreed to, but the other stuff that had to happen didn't happen. That one has tripped me up a little bit, but I, I do think if, if he hits the ground running at AAA after – struggling a bit there last year he gets the quick call up this year as well i don't know if it changes the plans of a team like seattle i think they're just a little too far away as far as kelnick and 
Julio Rodriguez go. I almost think it pushes the other way for them, where in a shortened season, that means there's fewer minor league games for development. They can more easily justify giving those guys that last time that they really need this year in the minors before debuting them early in 2021. Um, and the same would hold true for Adley Rutschman. I don't think we're going to see him this year. I think we see him maybe next year. Joey Barton, San Francisco. The rebuilding teams have less incentive to bring those guys up, but the fringy teams and the contending teams, I think, are going to be more aggressive. So definitely try to lean into that. Just because uh, we're talking about like the rookies and the impacts they can have. And uh, like a player that I'm kind of confused with to do it, and we're talking about all these rookies and their potential impact, is Yasiel Puig. You know, I'll bid a dollar or two, maybe even go three, but he's going in, say, four, five, six dollar range. And he doesn't have a team where, you know, probably a couple of months away from playing baseball. I'm just, I don't know what to do with Puig because it's a potentially a windfall of profitability if he signs with somebody over the next month or so. I would look at Puig like this. Whatever you're willing to throw away in terms of endgame auction dollars, you should throw that at Puig. If that number is $7, it's 7 If it's 3 it's 3 You might get him for 3 And the reason I think you can look at it that way is because you're going to have players that you cut on, on teams no matter how you build them. So if you're comfortable cutting a $7 player the first week of the season if he doesn't have a job, I think Puig's worth every penny of that $7. Because if he has a team, he has a job. If he has a job, he's probably a $15 player in a 15-team mixed league with room for a bit more. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, yeah, that, that is a, a fair assessment. But it's just it's really confusing, I'm, at least for me. I'm, but I, I think the way you said it, whatever you're willing to, whether it's three to seven, I think that's, that's pretty fair. And that's the way I was looking at it for a long time, like with, uh, with Chris Sale at the top of the board before we knew he was having Tommy John surgery, when, when there was uncertainty about what his plan was. It's like, well, how early of a pick or how much money are you willing to actually throw away? And that's going to change for everybody. I mean, it depends how good you are at managing fab. It depends on other things that have happened to your team to that point. Uh, I think the same probably holds true uh, when it comes to Puig at this point, although the cost is obviously a lot lower. Uh, good question, though. Thanks a lot for reaching out, Kev. Uh, next question comes from Doug. What players are you now most worried about being traded in an only league, assuming that you don't get the stats anymore if they change leagues? Doug adds J.D. Martinez from the AL and Noah Syndergaard as his tops for each league. That's that's tough because we don't know if the trade deadline is in the middle of the season. It's probably going to get pushed back. I would assume it's going to be for the last month of the season when you can't make deals. I think a lot of the big contract stars, for the most part, just stay put in a shortened season because it with the variance we were talking about before, like this is a this is a type of scenario where the Rockies could go from being a big disappointment last year to being surprisingly good this year, even though they did nothing. Like they're just a weird team. They could just go on this run where they score eight runs a game for a month because of their ballpark and they end up being a surprise playoff team this year. So I don't think Nolan Arenado necessarily gets moved in season. I think he might be more of an off-season uh, pre-2021 
sort of player. But does anyone kind of stand out to you as a definite trade chip? Like the JD thing makes a lot of sense because it, it's the direction of the Red Sox having already traded bets and price, having already lost sale. They're probably not going to be in the thick of things, even though they're not a bad team at this point. Uh, and cutting costs seems like such a, a priority for them that I could I could see JD getting moved in the middle of the season. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just really tough because, like you said, I think the Rockies uh, analogy is perfect. What if the Rockies now, with this new schedule, have their, like, you know, 15 of the first 20 games are at Coors, and now it's Coors in, say, late June, July, versus Coors opening up at the end of March, April, where, it's a, where, where it plays completely different. So I, I think Arenado's stock is more secure now. You're not worrying about him getting traded as much. As far as JD goes, I don't really see him leaving the American League though, because if you're going to take on the, the contract, I don't. I don't know if the team wants to play him every day in the outfield in the National League. I don't know if that's viable. Yeah, that's true. It would be a pretty pretty big hit to the defense for a team to do that. Even though I I still love JD as a hitter. He's, he can still mash. I think he's a little underpriced where he's going in early leagues. I, this would be my plea, by the way. Like, If you can make a change to your only league, and I know a lot of only leagues have been around as long as I've been alive, try to change that rule. You should not lose a player because his major league team traded him across leagues. Like, Sure, it's a keeper league, and you can't keep the player after the season because of it. I totally understand that. You, you shouldn't have any sort of like grandfather the player uh, back into the league for the future or anything like that. But in-season loss of key players, it, that adds an element of of chance to those leagues that you really, I don't think you want to mess with that whatsoever. Um, Cindergaard, I, I don't think they're going to go down that road. I, I think when when Brody was was kind of teasing that a few years ago, I think that was just a like a complete dangle to kind of set a market and see what it was going to cost. I don't think that was ever like a real thing that was going to happen. I mean, it's just my feel from the outside. I don't have, I have no connections to the inside of the Mets. But did you ever actually think the Mets were going to trade Noah Syndergaard? Uh, I I don't really think so. I think like as you said, like, like Brody basically got the job by telling the Wilpons they could win with what they had now, the roster, the money constraints, and all that. The only way it would have – maybe he floated it out there to see if he can get, like, an unbelievable package, that like an offer he couldn't refuse. But I don't see – I don't see a lot of people getting traded. I would assume maybe it's the halfway point of the season where they have the trade deadline because I think most teams will do it in the off season where ap- applicable – so I would think that's the route they're going to go. Yeah, I'm with you there. Uh, thanks for the question, Doug. Got a question from Al. He's looking for some NL-only pitching targets in a 4 by 4 league where strikeouts are removed. Uh, for me, that just that's an immediately like a bump for Kyle Hendricks. Uh, Marcus Stroman becomes a lot interesting, a lot more interesting to me in a format where you're not worried about chasing strikeouts. Uh, maybe even like Madison Bumgarner at this point. I mean, I I don't think he's a great option in most leagues, but I think he's maybe being overcorrected on a little bit. Uh, do you have anybody, Matt, who when you don't have to think about strikeouts actually becomes more appealing to you on the NL side? Uh, on the, I would say you mentioned Hendricks. I would say Mike Soroka gets a bump there. Some lower end guys just to throw out like a Sandy Alcantara. Uh, Josh Lindblom has a rotation spot right now. Maybe he benefits from that. And 
a guy who I, mean, I don't know why I can't quote this guy, but I, I think could be more appealing this season is uh, Rick Porcello in the National League, getting to face the pitcher and all that, and you don't have to worry about strikeouts. Yeah, I'm with you there. So hopefully those are some names that definitely get bumps in that league, Al, and, and you might be in a league where some people aren't correctly uh, adjusting their rankings for uh, that format. I uh, definitely prefer 5x5, five five, but I know some of those leagues out there, again, they're stubborn. They're not making that change. Uh, last question this week comes from Mike the Mouth. Uh, famous uh, NFBC player. Uh, why haven't you had the godfather of the NFBC and the most interesting man in the NFBC on yet? Uh, I don't have a good answer to this question. Do you have a good answer to that question, Matt? Well, I mean, if you want to call yourself the godfather, you know, you really don't give yourself nicknames. <laughs> but I would think Mike has his own podcast. So I actually thought he yeah. did too. So, I mean, yeah. that was that was at least a part of my thinking was like, well... He has his own podcast, and I, I do invite people who have their own podcasts on our show, but mostly it's because we don't have that many guests on our shows. Like mm-hmm. we, we do one day a week where we mix in different guests, and uh, so far, and it hasn't been, hasn't been Mike yet, but uh, Mike on Twitter is, uh, he's like a, a volcano of rage, like especially when Noah Syndergaard pitches. Like when Noah Syndergaard gets hit, I, all I see in my timeline is Mike the Mouth just erupting. With with fury and rage about Syndergaard being a disappointment. I've been pro Syndergaard this uh, off season, and what what Mike the Mouth jumping ship. I mean, that, that's another reason to like him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do love Mike personally. We do get along fantastically in person. No, <laughs> we try yeah. to avoid each other on Twitter. Yeah, you guys on Twitter are, are not. Um, that, that's not a good fit. You, you guys should stay away from each other on Twitter. But uh, no, I like Mike as well. And, He's part of our uh, our iced coffee drinking like fantasy baseball gang. Like he's he's one of the guys that shows up with the uh, the jumbo iced coffee like you and I do when we get to our, our drafts. So I don't know who at some point absolutely I, I don't know we could probably do it down the road. But Mike has his own pod, uh, so I think that's probably part of why that hasn't happened yet. Uh, that is going to wrap things up for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. If you're not already a subscriber. The Athletic is offering a 90-day free trial. If you decide that you want to sign up for a full year, you can get 40% off a subscription at theathletic.com slash podcast. For Matt Medica, I'm Derek Van Riper. We're back with you on Wednesday with Under the Radar. 